There are many verses in the Bible, and so many of those verses are absolutely clear and unequivocal in their meaning. There's no debate, there's no confusion, there's no perplexity. You just read the scripture, and its meaning is explicit and, un and unambiguous. And it doesn't matter what version of the Bible you read, the meaning is always the same. And one of those verses that I read recently and I would like to share with you this morning is found in John chapter 10, verse 10. Those of you who are familiar with your Bibles know this verse, and you can quote it by heart. It reads, the thief cometh not, but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And we all know who the thief is. The thief is Satan. And we know what the thief does. He is here to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But this is what Satan does for, for a living. This is his occupation. He does this 24-7. And he's been doing it ad infinitum from the beginning of the world. It's kind of like his job description. And Satan never takes a day off. He never has a vacation. He's out to steal, to kill, and to destroy 24-7, seven days a week. Now, in order to do this job that Satan does, he has been given some tools. Really, I call them weapons. And I, I think of them more in the sense of weapons of mass destruction. And it should come as no surprise what these weapons are. He's used the same weapons for centuries. They're the usual hate, envy, lust, greed, bitterness, resentment, jealousy, and the list goes on and on. Satan is so predictable. He uses the same weapons on us over and over again. And for centuries, those weapons have been effective. But in my opinion, there is no weapon of Satan that is more effective than the weapon of fear. That is the primary weapon that he has in his quiver. And when he pulls out an arrow and he shoots it at you, it's one of the things that he wants to do to really destroy you is he causes you to be gripped by fear. Now, the, the unusual thing about fear, the strange thing about fear, is the way it affects us individually because it affects our minds. Sometimes when we are gripped by fear, we can't think clearly. Suddenly, up is down and down is up, and we're in this mental fog because of fear. And um, I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life where I have really, really been afraid. I remember one time uh, many years ago, uh, I owned a, a Cessna, an airplane. It was a two-passenger airplane, single engine. I was a pilot, my dad was a pilot. And uh, one day, he, uh, it was in the fall of the year in southern Ohio, and he wanted to take a ride because the leaves were turning and it was just uh, beautiful uh, to see the leaves turning in the hills. And he wanted to see them from the air. So we went out, we hopped in the plane, we took off. Everything was going smoothly. I'd done all the pre-flight checks before we took off. And as we were climbing out, I was uh, leaning the mixture, the fuel mixture, so that a as you go higher in altitude, the air gets thinner, you can lean out your mixture and you will use less fuel. 
And I'm always a big one on saving fuel. So I was leaning out that mixture, but you have to be very careful when you do that. And as I was leaning out the mixture, a gust of wind came along, tipped the wings. I had to grab the yoke and level the plane. And I forgot all about that mixture. I forgot all about that knob. And as we continued to climb, suddenly, out of nowhere, we started to get a rough engine. And I mean, it was a really rough engine. And, and my dad looked at me and he said, what's wrong? And I said, I don't know, but we're turning back to the airport right now. And I made an immediate 180. And as I made that turn and the engine was really running rough, I knew we were not going to make it to the airport. And I was going to have to find a place to make a forced landing. But I started to scan my instruments to see if I could find out what was wrong. And I looked at that mixture control knob. And I immediately pushed it all the way forward. And when I did that, the engine started to purr. We had all the power we needed. We proceeded to the airport. We landed safely. But I can tell you, my heart, when that happened, was gripped with fear. My palms were sweaty. I, 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 I was, I, I was, it was hard for me to think. I knew we were in real trouble, but thank the Lord, everything worked out for us and we made it back safely. But the thing I want you to know, the important thing I want you to know this morning, that fear, that God is not the source or the origin of fear. In fact, the Bible teaches us exactly the opposite. And there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of references in the Bible where God says, fear not, don't fear, don't be afraid. There's no place that I'm aware of where God says, okay, now it's time to be afraid. Quite the opposite. But because of this pandemic, this crisis we're, we're in right now, as I meet people, as I talk to people, I sense that there's this foundational fear among everyone. And people are afraid primarily because no one knows what's going to happen next. They are fe fearful because of the uncertainty, the instability, the unpredictability, and the volatility of future events. No one knows what the future is going to hold. Yet, and this is the amazing thing, as I read my Bible, I see that there are times where God has brought his people through crisis after crisis. And this crisis is not the first crisis that we've been face, faced with as far as mankind is concerned. Actually, when you look at the history of mankind, one of the first uh, events that happened that affected the, the, all of mankind was in the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden, by that one simple act of Adam and Eve taking of that fruit from that tree called the tree of, the, of, of knowledge and evil, that one simple act, stop and think about this, that one simple act changed the course of mankind forever. But that's not the only biblical time that God took his finger and touched the earth and got the earth's attention through a crisis. There was a flood. There was a great flood, and it destroyed the earth. And the Bible says, as it was in the day of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. Listen, they ate, they drank, they married wives. They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. The Apostle Paul said that before Christ's return, the world, listen to this carefully, the world would have perilous times. Doesn't that sound like 
the day we're living in. Perilous times, filled with pleasure-seeking, materialism, immorality, violence, idleness, and rejection of things of God. Rejection of God. That is exactly the world we're living in today. But thankfully, there were a few people that survived that flood and they replenished the earth. But I think those are Old Testament examples. As we look at the New Testament, there is one thing that happened in the New Testament, which was the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without a doubt, this was the most pivotal event in the history of mankind. When God sent his son in the flesh to die on a cross for our sins and the sins of all mankind. Listen to what the Bible says. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. So those are things that happened in the Bible that have affected us. In a sense, they created a crisis for many people. But that was biblical times. Let's look at the modern times that we live in today. And I look at this era that we live in. And I look at my generation and my father's generation and my children and my grandchildren. And I look at their generation. And it covers a span of the first half of the 20th century, the second half of the 20th century, and the first half of the 21st century. When I look back at my, my dad and the, and the day and time that he lived in, he was born in 1918 in the hills of West Virginia. And that was a year that we had another pandemic. It was called the Spanish flu. And in 1918, the Spanish flu killed 50 million people worldwide, 675,000 in America. But my dad survived. My grandmother, her name was Martha. She was a praying woman. I met her. I remember her. And because of her prayers, because of her faithfulness to God, through that pandemic crisis, my dad survived. But his generation is sometimes referred to as the greatest generation. Because listen to the crises that my dad's generation survived. Not only was there the pandemic flu in 1918, but... In the 1920s, there was the Great Depression, and it was a real depression. I mean, people were uh, poverty-stricken. There were real soup lines. There was real hunger. The Great Depression happened in, I think, 1925. Then after that, there were two world wars. And in the middle of World War II, something happened that probably was the most evil, hideous event in mankind. It, it was called the Holocaust. But that was my dad's generation, and that was, those were the crises that he faced. Look at my generation. What crisis has affected me? Well, as I look back on my, my generation, one of the things that affected me more than anything happened on November the 22nd in 1963. On November, November the 22nd in 1963, I'm pretty sure it was on a Friday, I was 10 years old. I was in the fifth grade, and I remember just before school let out, it was in the afternoon, the principal came on the loudspeaker at our school, and he told us that President Kennedy had been shot, and he was assassinated. 
that crisis, that event affected my generation. generation. And, and it has affected my generation for many years. But that was a pivotal crisis in my generation. Then I look at my children and my grandchildren and a generation that, that they live in. Probably one of the most um, tragic events that they, they ever or will ever experience happened on September 11, 2001. I'm sure that's a day we all remember. I remember it vividly when those planes flew into those towers. And they came crashing down in the devastation and the loss of life and the fear that gripped the nation. It was, it was a tragic, terrible day. I had a friend. I have a friend. His name is Carl. He was there that day on 9-11. He worked in the World Trade Center. I can't remember which tower. But he, I went out to dinner with Carl one time. And he told us the story of how he was going to work that morning. And just by circumstance the train his train was just a few minutes late and he was walking up the steps into the world trade center just as he heard the the first jet and it went crashing into his building and as he looked up he said i saw the debris starting to rain down and i had two choices and he said i could either run into the building or i could turn and run away from the building and just by God's grace, he turned, he ran away from the building, and he was saved. And Carl told me that just a few blocks away, he watched this whole thing unfold, and he saw hundreds of people jump from 110 stories to their death because they had, a, they, they had no choice. It was either die in the fire or jump to their death. 200 people decided they were going to jump to their death. This is a crisis that has affected my, my children and my grandchildren's generation. And now I look at the current crisis we're in. This is a pandemic, and it has affected all the world. But I, I view this crisis as a little bit different than other crises that I have described to you and that we have experienced in this modern era. And it's different because of a number of reasons. And let me just explain a few. I've never seen a day where commerce has suddenly come to a complete halt. I've never seen a day where unemployment is through the roof. I've never seen a day where the colleges, schools, and graduations were totally canceled all across the country. I've never seen a day where families were on lockdown in their own homes. I've never seen a day where people are afraid to shake hands or to give someone a hug. How long this will last is anyone's guess. And I believe God has given me this opportunity today to speak to you because there's something very important that he has laid upon my heart and I want to tell you. So I just want you to please listen very carefully and you may want to grab a pencil or a paper, piece of paper and write this down. I think this is what God sent me here to tell you today. Listen carefully. It's not the crisis we are in, whatever that may be, that God gets God's attention. Gets God's attention. It's not the crisis. It's never the crisis. What God is really interested in is how we handle the crisis. 
Because how we handle the crisis depends on whether we please God, whether we make him happy. Because we can handle these crises that come along in a way that makes God sad and makes him cry. And as I read my Bible, I have come across a very specific example of a man who faced crisis after crisis after crisis in his life. He was at the point of total ruin, yet through it all. I think there's a song in there somewhere. Yet through it all, he held on to God's unchanging hands. He was afflicted by disease far worse than the coronavirus. He went from riches to rags almost overnight. His own family turned against him, but, but his faith in God never wavered, not even for a second. And his name was Job. And some of you are probably familiar, very familiar with the story of Job, but I would like to read some excerpts from chapter 1. Job chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The Bible says, In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. And he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys. He had a large number of servants. And listen to this. This is a great compliment that is paid to Job in the Bible. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Let me tell you, there was a point in Job's life where he was living the dream. He had everything going for him. He was a rich man. He had plenty of wealth. He had children. He had cattle. God had blessed him. And he had that wonderful relationship with God. God was on his side. And that's the first part of chapter 1. And then if you'll read chapter 1, verses 4 through 12, and I won't read them because they're rather long, but let me summarize them for you because they're amazing. If you read what happened next in the life of Job, you'll see that there was a conversation between God and Satan. And I think this is so um, amazing that we can actually read in the Bible a transcript conversation between God and Satan. And there are other examples in the Bible, but I don't think there's any as detailed as this conversation between God and Satan. Because it really, if you read uh, the conversation that they had, it really shows you the heart of God. And it also shows you the, the heart of Satan. But let me summarize this for you. Basically, during the conversation, Satan pointed his finger. Of course, this is my summary and my version. Satan, I can just see this happening. Satan pointing his finger at God and saying, I know about your servant, Job. I know he loves you. But, but just think about this, God. If you would let that hedge of protection down that you have around him, and if you would let me have him, I promise you, he'll curse you and die. And God responds to Satan and says, you think so? Is that what you think? Well, I'll tell you what. I know Job better than you know Job. I'll let that hedge of protection down. I'll let you go to him. There's only one, only one caveat. You cannot take his life. Do whatever else you want, but you cannot take his life. And now let's read beginning at verse 13. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking 
while at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. That was crisis number one. And just think, there was no hesitation, no time to recover, no time for the, the, the fog of fear to set in because immediately, immediately after that, the Bible says, while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, crisis number two, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and I am the only one to tell you. Crisis number three immediately follows while he was still speaking. Another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down upon your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. And you might think three immediately back to back is enough, but no, there was a fourth one and this was the worst one. While he was still speaking, Yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. Then suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they are dead. And I am the only one who escaped to tell you. Now listen to verse 20. Listen to how Job reacted to this crisis and maybe this will help us in some way when we react to the crisis verse number 20 at this Job got up tore his robe shaved his head and fell to the ground and cursed God no that's not right that's not right then he fell to the ground and raised his fist to no no that's that's not right there must be something wrong after all of that that he went through what this Bible says is he fell to the ground and worshiped. And listen to these famous words, very famous words of Job. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And, all, and, and in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. In other words, Job did not blame God for everything that he had been through. And then if you jump to verse, uh, chapter 42, verse 10, listen to what happened in the end. The Bible says, after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. Verse 12, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. Very profound words in the, in the Bible. Very inexplicable. But this is how God works in so many ways. And the striking thing to me as I read these verses in the Bible that really grips my heart is the fact that I see a lot of parallels between what Job experienced in his life and what we're experiencing today with this uh, uh, pandemic. Think about it. Job, one minute, he had everything going for him. I mean, life was good. He was wealthy. He had no cares. And just like that, 
it was all taken out and ripped away from him. Isn't that what has happened to us today in this pandemic, this crisis? Just think, a few weeks ago, the economy was great. Everyone had a job. We had full employment. The stock market was doing wonderfully. We were just, we were just doing wonderful. And then out of nowhere, suddenly it's been ripped away from us. And now we have to deal with the uh, effects of this crisis. Very many parallels between what Job has experienced and what we are experiencing today. But that's not all. You noticed in the Bible, Job, one crisis after another. Just one crisis after another. And, and, I, and that's why I think so many people, their hearts are gripped with fear. Because since this crisis has began, it's just bad news after bad news after bad news. More people are dying. There's more people getting infected. Do we have a cure? Uh, uh, do, we, do we need more tests? All of those things. And it's just crisis after crisis. So there are many parallels between the two. Now what I want to ask you this morning and the question I want to pose to you today is how are you handling this crisis? Because remember, it's not the crisis. It's never the crisis. It's how we handle the crisis that either makes God happy or makes him sad. But I want to encourage you today to deal with the crisis like Job dealt with the crisis. Remember those famous words. Naked I came into this world. Naked I'm going to leave. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In the middle of everything that was happening to Job, he kept his wits about him. He kept his faith. He didn't doubt. He didn't worry. He just threw up his hands through it all and said, blessed be the name of the Lord. Sometimes in crisis, I really believe that God is using these things to test us. And he's trying to uh, test us by taking out his spiritual measuring rod. And he's, he's trying to see how we measure up under pressure. About three days ago, I received an email from a, a dear friend of mine. He's a pastor, been a, a, a good friend for a long time. He pastors a great church. I know a lot of people in his church. And he sent me this email. And what he told me in the email really shocked me. He told me that his church was divided into two groups. And when he told me this, I thought, well, the way these things usually go when churches divide, it's usually over silly things like, do we have blue carpet or do we install red carpet? Do we need a new pastor? Do we need a new uh, worship leader? It's usually those kind of things that churches divide over. But I was shocked when he told me his church is divided over coronavirus. And as a pastor, he's doing his best to try to pull everybody together. And that's a difficult thing sometimes for a pastor. And sometimes pastors are successful, and sometimes they're not. But you see, that's Satan's job. That's his job description. That's what he does best. He divides people into groups. 
And he pits people, this group against that group. God hates that stuff. He does. But Satan is so good at it. And sometimes, even in the church setting, he, ha- he is successful. And I just pray that all of you who are listening to me today, that we would be filled with the Spirit of God so much that we would set all of that nonsense aside and not let s- Satan outsmart us and that we would come together. It's hard for me to believe that Jesus died on the cross and gave his life for our sins so we could be separated in these little groups. And I, re- I, I, also, uh, I also feel that in addition to the weapon, all these weapons that Satan uses, there's another modern weapon that he has now utilized to divide the church and to cause confusion in the body of Christ. And it's called social media. And let me say that social media is a great thing. It's a wonderful thing. I couldn't be speaking to you today if it wasn't for social media. And we have three platforms that we use. We have, I think we have Facebook, we have YouTube, and I think we have Instagram to get the gospel out, to spread the good news. So that people know what the Bible says and how you handle a crisis when it comes into your life. And remember, this is so important. It's not the crisis. It's never the crisis. It's how we handle the crisis. That's the important thing. But Satan has grasped grasped onto this new modern weapon called social media. And I'm just afraid that a lot of people are addicted to, to social media, and, and addictions are usually unhealthy. And Satan is trying to use this medium to draw uh, uh, everybody and separate people into groups, and he's trying to cause division in the, in the body of Christ. And I'm not speaking about any local church or any particular body, because this is widespread. I mean, it's all across the, the, the spectrum. So many denominations, this is what I've come to discover in the, in, the, in the last few days. So many denominations all across the region, they're being affected by Satan and he's trying to divide us. And I would just like to give you a word of caution this morning because I love you. Before you click and you post something out there on the internet for the whole world to see, Just stop, just stop and say a quick prayer and think, is this going to cause God to be happy or is it going to break his heart? Is he going to cry? Will this pull us together in the body of Christ or will this serve to divide the body of Christ? And I think if you stop and pause and ask those questions, instead of hitting the click button, God may want you to hit the delete button. And and I want us to be more like Job. Think about that. Job, even in the middle of the crisis, he was so faithful to God and he was so um, blessed And I just want us to keep that in mind. Be more like Job. Don't let Satan divide and conquer 
Remember, it's not the crisis. It's never the crisis. It's how we handle the crisis, whether we make God happy or whether we make God sad. Now, as I leave you this morning, I just want to share one other little golden nugget with you. You may be having a very difficult time today in these difficult uh, days. I'm only human. I have those same feelings from time to time, but I want to tell you something that worked for me. When I'm down and out, when I fear, feel that ghostly fear that Satan is trying to grip my heart, I just stop and I have what I guess could be described as my own little prayer meeting. And I'll just start to sing and I'll, start, I'll just start to praise the Lord. And before I know it, I'm in another world and all those cares are gone and all those fears are gone and all the trepidation is gone. And suddenly God has given me new encouragement and new strength.